all in the name of God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it is good to be back with you again, um, to be preaching for you this evening, but also to have fellowship with you and see familiar faces, um, though many behind masks. Um, but it's great to be with you all and to be preaching this evening. I, my name is Eddie Webster. I'm from um, Arnold Road Evangelical Church, um, and I am studying at London Seminary, as Paul uh, mentioned earlier. Um, I'm, I'm in my third year now, uh, for those who are keeping track of where I am. Um, so I, it's my third of, my, of four years, um, so I will, I've still got quite a bit to go, but it's going really quickly, um, and it's been a really blessed time. Um, to share a few things, um, just from Arnold Road Church, as well, um, just some things for encouragement and prayer. Um, at Arnold Road, um, we've had quite a number of newcomers since lockdown, um, quite a n- number of new faces, maybe new faces here as well. Um, so it's been good that um, God's been at work during this time. We, we know that God's always at work, um, so we, we're very thankful for him um, in this. Um, especially something to praise is that um, there are a number of young people who wish to be baptised in our church, probably about, I think it's about six of them. Um, and they'll be hoping to be baptized sometime in March time, but it's just a joy to see them want to profess their faith in the Lord. Um, it's, it's wonderful to see. Um, and also, yeah, Christmas is coming up, and as I've been hearing, you're getting leaflets out and books out, and we're getting leaflets out and books out and um, various things as well. So um, please pray for us at Christmas time, um, and um, yes, just we'll be praying for you as well I'm here in Loughborough. Please um, open your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be focusing on the first um, part of Isaiah chapter 6, though really the the second half kind of goes straight with the first half, but um, the emphasis this evening is going to be on the first half. Um, So as we um, come to this passage, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We know this evening, Lord, we are coming before you and you are a majestic and holy God and we do not presume on your mercies and kindness to us, but we ask as needy sinners that you would show us the sight of your glory again, show us a sight and that we've not seen before, even in this passage which may be familiar to many of us, um, May not not be, may it not fall on dull ears and um, blind eyes or um, hard hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you by faith, um, afresh this evening, um, to delight in your holiness, to to fear you in your holiness, to to rejoice in who you are, um, all that you are, and um, towards us. So, Lord, we ask that you'd be with us this evening, in Jesus' name, Amen. Perhaps you were alive at the time when Princess Diana of Wales died. Perhaps you remember the day that she died when you heard the news. I don't remember it at all. Um, I was only four, so uh, I, I didn't even know that it had happened. And maybe some of you are in a similar situation to me. You weren't born at the time. Maybe um, you, didn't, you don't even know who she is um, yet. Perhaps many of you can remember that day and perhaps imagine um, a day when that big news comes, the year Princess Diana died. 
well, our passage this evening starts with a royal death, doesn't it, as well? In the year that King Uzziah died, Judah is in a place of national mourning. They have just had many good years under Uzziah's reign, but now he had gone. King Uzziah, if you didn't know, was the tenth king of Judah, and on the most part, he was a good king. The Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's always a good sign about a king in the Bible. This is a man who sought after God's own heart, just like his father David before him, and God blessed him for it. He was victorious against the Philistines. He built towers in Jerusalem, and he strengthened the city walls. Under his rule, Judah was restored back to the military power that it once was. But then the latter part of his life was characterized by a tragic failure. Uzziah became proud in its Sorry. There we go. Uzziah became proud in his heart um, and thought that he could take the job of a priest in the temple. And so he entered into the temple to burn incense on the altar. But he was not allowed to do this. And he was stopped before he could do that. But even there, as he had set his heart to do this sin against the Lord, he was struck with leprosy as a result, a socially isolating disease that left him locked in his home, really, for the rest of his days. So if you thought lockdown was bad, this was far worse. Well, King Uzziah has died. Long live the new king. Well, the Bible tells us that his son Jotham reigned in his place. But he's not the focus here in Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah saw an even greater king. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. King Uzziah may have sat down on a throne in Jerusalem, but the Lord sits forever enthroned in heaven. It is to this king that we are coming to this evening. Do you realize, do you realize that? This is what we're doing tonight as we gather together. Yes, we're a bunch of people that gather together in a room to hear um, some guy from Nottingham speak to you all. But that's not really the focus here, is it? We're looking to someone much greater and higher than our souls. We've not even come here to mourn over a dead king. We've come to rejoice in a living king, a living king who reigns. This is what we do even each week as we come to church. We've We've come before a throne which is above all other thrones, and seated on it is a king who is greater than all other kings. This evening, we've gathered together to behold the majestic holiness of the Lord, our God. In whatever circumstances we're in tonight, tonight we can come before the, to the throne of grace to behold our King. This is why Paul perhaps read Philippians 2 to begin with. Our attention this evening is to be directed to the exalted one, the one who sits in the highest place. 
who has the name above every other name, the one to whom all knees will bow. We are coming tonight to see the majestic holiness of Jesus. But hold up, Eddie. I didn't hear the name Jesus in the reading earlier in Isaiah 6. Yes, he's in Philippians, but Isaiah? Isaiah mentioned the Lord, Yahweh, but Jesus? How is Isaiah's vision a vision of Jesus? Well, let me show you this, both from this passage and another one. Just look with me for a moment at verse 10 of our chapter. Just notice what it's saying there. It's speaking of about a people who will not hear and a people who will not see. It's speaking of Israel in their hardened hearts. Well, keep a finger there in Isaiah and turn with me now to John chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. John chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. Well, if you're with me, look there um, at verse 40, and you can see there's a quote there, and it's from Isaiah 6, isn't it? It's the, it's the same verse. Isaiah 6, verse 10, is being quoted here in John's Gospel. The language is exactly the same. And so there's the link between the two passages. But here's the really interesting thing in verse 41. Look at this. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory, and spoke about him. Isaiah said these words in Isaiah 6 when he saw Jesus Christ, when he saw the Lord, when he beheld his glory. The one who is high and exalted, seated up on the throne in heaven in Isaiah 6, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Holy, holy, holy is Jesus Christ, the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is how we see God in the person of Jesus Christ. So I hope you can see that link between the chapters and why I'll be referring to this person on the throne as Jesus tonight. Jesus is God, it is God on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. And we've come to see a vision of him. There's no physical temple for us to come and see the glory of the Lord more anymore, but we can see the same Jesus Christ here today by the, through the eyes of faith. It's like two people looking at the same sun in two different countries, you know, they're miles apart. It's the same object they're looking at. It's the same thing. Isaiah is 2,700 years apart from us. I think that's a long distance. And yet Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We too can behold the Son of Righteousness. We too can behold the majestic holiness of the Lord. So let's do this as we come to our first point for this evening. Behold his majesty. Behold his majesty. Let's come back to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 now, and just examine this scene more closely. This is verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, 
high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The first thing we see here about the Lord is that he is seated upon a throne. He's ruling. He's in charge. He's the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. The throne itself tells us this. It's high and exalted. Who else would sit on the highest and most exalted throne other than the most exalted one? This is a heavenly throne. This throne is higher than any other earthly throne. It's beyond what we can attain ourselves. It's something that only God has. We might be forgiven, in fact, for thinking that this throne was inside the temple. But there was no throne inside the temple. You know, there was the Holy of Holies, and inside the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. But that wasn't God's throne. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Heaven is my throne. We've got to look up. We've got to look to our temple higher than here, higher than the temple, up into the heavens. This is where God is seated, in heavenly places. His throne is in the heavens, high and exalted above all other things. Well, what did Isaiah see next? Well, verse 1 says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Perhaps you've seen the queen dressed in her royal robes with that great long cloak trailing behind her. Well, that's the same picture here. Try to imagine it in your mind. There's the Lord seated in the heavens. And then coming down is this great long robe trailing down, all the way down to earth. And when the bottom then of the robe reaches the temple, it completely fills the whole building. This is the Lord, robed in majesty and splendor. What a sight to see. This train of the robe coming down from the heavens. Imagine yourself standing there looking upon it. You can see it flowing down, all the way down to earth, this carpet in the sky. And as it comes down, the very tip at the end fills the temple, filling it up. A sight. And then you get even smaller and smaller right down there, right at the very bottom in front of the temple. And you see this tiny, weeny little man standing there, looking up at it all. There's tiny, weeny Isaiah and big, majestic God. Imagine if you were in that situation, big majestic God, and you're just, you're just standing there. <laughs> you know, this is a sight that capt- is, should captivate us, should set us in awe and wonder of who our God is. This, this is the King. It puts everything else into perspective, doesn't it? This is a majestic view of God and a tiny view of man. But then the vision continues. In verse 2, there are some living beings around the throne called seraphim or fiery ones. 
They are angelic beings of the highest order. This is actually the only place in the Bible that they're named, and we really don't know much about them. We hardly even know what they look like. The word fiery ones, something. But that's besides the point. We don't even need to know what they look like because, well, they don't even want us to see. You see, they had six wings, and we can tell that, but with four of them, they were covering themselves up. The seraphim must have been quite amazing to look at. They don't want the focus to be on them. They live in the presence of someone far greater than themselves, the Lord of glory. And so they cover themselves up out of reverence and awe. And now, with this sight, Isaiah standing there beholding it all, one of the most amazing statements in all of scripture is spoken. There in verse 3, one seraph cried to the other, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah was in the presence of the thrice holy God. If you're wondering why the word holy there is repeated, well, it's there for emphasis. In the English, we have exclamation marks. In the Hebrew, they had word repetition. So if a word is repeated twice, and that happens quite often, it's a sign to sit up and take notice. But three repetitions doesn't happen very much. And in fact, this is the only time when an attribute of God in the Bible is repeated in this way. Think about that. God is not love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Wrath, wrath, wrath. Justice, justice, justice. He is holy, holy, holy. What then is the holiness of God? Well, for one, it refers to his absolute purity. There's no spot within him at all, no hint of evil. He is morally perfect. His moral excellence is his defining characteristic. You cannot trace any stain, any pollution, any darkness, any crookedness. There's no sin in him at all. He is pure, unpolluted excellence. And well, if he is like this, then he is in a class of his own. The word holy in the Hebrew literally means to be set apart. God is distinct. He's incomparable, unparalleled, matchless, supreme. God's holiness is his uniqueness from all other things. And so we should not just think of God's holiness as his moral excellence, but also his utter separateness. You know, if you want to categorize everything that's ever existed, you only need two categories. You know, God and everything else. And I've done that the wrong way around because that's all small. And this is the bigger thing. God, God and everything else. Even the seraphim there are here with us and the whole of creation 
God is completely and utterly unique. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. How amazing then that he would display this holiness throughout all the earth. That's what the Seraph's saying there in the second line. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just as the sun's rays flood the earth every single morning, so too does God's holiness shine out upon all things in all its glorious splendor. The whole earth basks in the radiance of his holiness. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Even the temple there is too small a dwelling place for God. You know, it was only the robes that went there. His whole glory fills the entire earth. God's eternal power and divine nature can be clearly seen in all of creation, in all things, because he's greater than all things. All of that on the creation side is still there, but his glory shines through it all. No wonder Solomon said that the temple cannot contain him. He is far greater than anything created. This vision of the Lord is magnificent, isn't it? I can't even begin to describe it in my own words. But perhaps you hear a vision like Isaiah's and think to yourself, why can't I have a vision like that? Why can't Eddie give a greater vision of it? You know, we want to see a greater vision of this. We want to see what Isaiah saw. We want to see the beauty of his holiness. Sounds so amazing. Or perhaps tonight, you might be here and you don't believe in God. Perhaps you want God to prove his existence to you. You know, it's one thing for this man 2,700 years ago to say that he saw God. So what? I'm not going to believe until I see him with my own eyes. Then I'll believe. Well, my friends, we can see this vision too, because it's a vision of Jesus Christ. You see, when we read the Bible, and wherever we see Jesus there, we see the glory of God. As 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 puts it, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we look at him and see him, we see the majestic king of kings, robed in glorious splendor. And when we observe his character, we see an endless list of his moral perfections, his joy, his compassion, his wisdom, his mercy, his justice, his peace, his patience, his self-control, his righteous anger, his zeal, his tenderness, his love. When we behold Christ in the scriptures, we see the majestic holiness of the Lord. How does that make you feel? Proud? Arrogant? Conceited? Does this vision make you feel good about yourself? Because I hope it doesn't. It's the last thing we should feel as we see this. 
This leads us on to our second point for this evening. Quake at his holiness. Quake at his holiness. This great announcement of God's glory echoed throughout the whole earth and literally shook the temple on its foundations. Look with me to verse 4. The doors begun to swing on their hinges. The entrance to the temple became dangerous to enter. You want to want to enter in here with doors going all over the place. Isaiah was not allowed to enter here. And that wasn't just with the doors. There was this smoke that had come in there as well, symbolizing a separation between God and man. Here was a barrier that Isaiah could not cross. He could not enter into this holy place. And yet, there he was, standing before the holy God, quaking before his maker. Upon seeing the Lord and this great vision, Isaiah is ruined. His mouth was stopped, and he only opened it to call down curses upon himself. This is what he says in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. Isaiah's words are really significant here because for the past few chapters in Isaiah, you may wonder, why does Isaiah begin in chapter 6? No. Why doesn't Isaiah begin in chapter 6? Why are there these five chapters beforehand? Well, as you're going through them, you'll see Isaiah pronouncing woes on various kinds of people. And it's come to this point now But Isaiah is no longer pronouncing woes on others. He's come before the Lord. And now he knows his own own unworthiness too. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Isaiah knows that he is also a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Isaiah is undone. He's unraveling apart at the seams. He's collapsing into pieces. He's falling into ruins. This sight has utterly destroyed him. I really like how R.C. Sproul puts this. He describes Isaiah as disintegrating. Think of someone who has it all together, someone who has integrity, they're integral. Perhaps they're all out for God, They're always doing something productive, something meaningful. They're a great role model for others to follow. Perhaps you know someone in your life who's like that. You look up to them and think, they seem far more holy than I am, far more humble, more confident, more joyful. I wish I had my life together like they did. In comparison, your life just seems like a mess. You're barely holding it together. And you're just so disappointed in yourself. Well, that's how Isaiah felt on a scale a million times worse. Because he may have been a good man, but in comparison to the Lord, any self-righteousness and pride in this moment was completely shot down. 
Out of everything Isaiah had to be proud of, nothing compared to the glory of the Lord. You can take all of man's accomplishments, all of the most glorious, most achieved, the most best things that we have done as man, and put them all on one side of a balance weighing scales. And then you just put God on the other side. And the weight of his majesty is always greater. Whatever we can do, whatever we can do, we just do not compare. What can I desire do or say now? All he can do is confess his sin. So he says in verse 5, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah knows he shouldn't be there, really. He's unfit for God's presence. He admits his mouth is unclean, which perhaps is suggesting he had he was particularly aware of his speech sins. We can't tell for sure, but it's significant he mentions his lips, because as a prophet, the most probably the most insignificant part of his body was his mouth, to proclaim the very words of God. And yet with the same mouth, he had poured out a world of iniquity. This wasn't a man who was merely saying sorry to God here then. In this little statement, it's very short, but he's actually overwhelmed with a sense of the guilt and shame of his sin in the presence of God. Have you had this experience? Has your life been undone in the presence of God. You know, usually we might think speak of being convicted by God's law, and rightly so. But in this passage, the law of God is nowhere to be seen. It's not the law that Isaiah was convicted by, but a sight of the lawgiver. It's one thing to look upon the perfect law of God and see the commandments and know that you've fallen short. But to look upon God himself and see him in all his perfections, now that's devastating. So is this how you feel when you behold God, when you behold Jesus? You know, think, think on this. You know, does Jesus' holiness convict you? Do you feel ruined in his presence? Oh, how my love for others is not like his love for others. My wisdom, my best decisions that I make in my life, how it's not like his wisdom, what he would have done. I'm not pure like he is. As much as I search myself, I always find some stain. I'm not lovely like he is. I'm not good like he is. The list can go on. Just think over your past week. If Jesus was in your shoes, would he have lived your life better than you? Have you lied this week? Or try to cover up your sin. Jesus would have been completely honest. 
Have you lusted over someone or watched pornography? Jesus would have resisted that temptation and kept a pure heart. Were you angry with someone? Did you lose your temper at a family member? Jesus would have stayed in control and patiently loved them. Have you been complaining about others this week? Have you looked down on others, thinking yourself better than them? Jesus would have humbly served them and sought their best. In fact, he'd probably do even greater than that. (laughs) If we compare how poorly we've been living our lives right now to how perfectly Jesus lived his, we would all fall short of his glory. This is how we all are in comparison to God. Wretched sinners who disintegrate in his presence. That facade, that mask we wear, what use is it before God? But we are not without hope. And this brings us on to our final point for this evening. Rejoice in his forgiveness. Rejoice in his forgiveness. There was poor Isaiah, cursed to die, completely ruined in the presence of the Lord. But then, suddenly, at the Lord's command, one of the seraphim sprang into action. The angelic being swiftly flew over to the altar in the temple, and taking some tongues, he plucked a live coal out from the fire. It seems even for the seraphim, these coals were too hot to handle. And then, He fled down to Isaiah, flew down, and he lifted up this coal to his lips. And he he pressed them up against them. You know, I don't know how that sounds to you, but I certainly wouldn't want a burning hot coal pressing my lips. But this is what happened. It must have really hurt. But in this one act, Isaiah's sin was completely dealt with. Look at what the seraph says in verse 7. See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. As soon as the coal touched the lips of Isaiah, his sin was completely taken away. In fact, the Hebrew literally means it came to an end. It finished. The guilt of Isaiah's sin had come to an end. He had been made clean in God's sight. His sin had been purged. It had been atoned for. All of it had been wiped away. Consider how Isaiah must have felt after hearing those words. He's just been in the presence of a holy God, completely devastated. But he confessed his sin. And his sin was atoned for. Perfectly atoned for, nothing left to pay, paid in full. How joyous he must have been. How, what a delight. Now he's in the presence of a holy God, but no longer is there any fear. There's, he can even stand up with some kind of boldness, even confidence before God, because his sin has completely been dealt with. See, there was nothing in this coal, if you're just thinking. The coal itself, it didn't have any magical properties. I don't recommend pressing coals against your lips because it doesn't do anything. 
It symbolized something much deeper that we all need. Isaiah experienced a forgiveness that went far beyond the purification of his lips. He was cleansed from the inside out, forgiven to the core of his being. His lips were scorched for a few seconds, but on the inside he experienced a healing that would last into eternity. This is purely an act of God's grace towards Isaiah. A few seconds ago, he was as good as dead. But now the king has shown him favor. Now he can stand face to face with God confidently, not because of anything he had done. Isaiah didn't do anything here, but all because of what God had done, because God had forgiven him. We too can be forgiven just like Isaiah. And you'll be glad to hear it doesn't have need that coal, a burning coal. When we compare ourselves to the Lord in his righteous splendor, we know there's nothing to boast about. But on the cross, now yes, that's our boast. Because Jesus has provided there the cleansing we all need. He has paid the price in full. Of all those things that were reminded in your head earlier, all of that has been paid for. All of that has been dealt with. We can be forgiven to the core cleansed from the inside out. We can receive atonement, the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all the more, that perfect life he lived, that we can't live, that we fail every week, was now accredited to our account. We are justified before God. We are declared innocent. We are righteous in God's sight. We've been made fit for his presence. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Have you received this atonement for your sin? Has the blood of Christ washed your iniquity far away? Has your guilt come to an end? Then you can come again and again to the throne of grace, to worship the Lord in his majestic holiness. See, this is the whole purpose of your cleansing, not just to walk away forgiven and say, oh, see, I never need to go to church again. No, we come back because we can worship him. We wake up each day and we can worship him. The purpose of our cleansing is fellowship with God, to worship him. You see, as a Christian, God's holiness now is something to delight in with reverent joy. You know, we can look upon him in his sinless perfections, the sinless perfections of Christ. Yes, we look with shame and how we fall short, but now with awe and wonder, we can praise our King Jesus because he is majestic in holiness. Think about it. If Jesus is holy, it means he will never sin against you. He'll never do anything wrong against you. And he's cleansed you of your sins. You're his now. You're set apart to him. You are holy in that sense. He's not going to do you wrong. He's never going to lie to you. He's never going to be unfaithful. He's never going to lord it over you. Never turn you away. In this world of darkness, and sin. We can trust in our holy king to always be there for us, to always be 
holy towards us, to always be kind and loving in the most perfect way. He, can lo- he loves us with a holy love. Come now, if you've not already entered into that holy love. Come now, if you already have. Come for fresh cleansing and healing in Jesus Christ. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. Bow down before the King of kings and Lord of lords and know him as your Lord and Saviour. Rejoice that he is your Lord and Saviour. And as we close, there has to be a warning too. Because the rest of Isaiah 6 shows us that there are many who reject Jesus. You know, verse 9 goes on to speak of how in Isaiah's day, the people would not listen. They did not believe God. And equally too, today, there are many hardened by their sin who do not believe in Christ. They are walking around blinded in their sin. And perhaps tonight, someone here is in that situation, listening to the sermon, but you don't care at all. Your ears are tired, in fact, of listening to sermons. Why do I keep coming to church on Sundays? You just want to be somewhere else. Is this you tonight? Perhaps you've heard God's voice time and again, but you don't come. Well, do not harden your heart as they did in Isaiah's day. Do not go away from church tonight and turn back to your sin. If you do, one day you will see the glory of the Lord, like Isaiah did. But there will be no forgiveness. There will be no altar. There will be no cross left for you to receive. You'll be facing the wrath of the Holy One. Maybe you're a Christian here tonight and you feel like you found it hard to come before God. Maybe you've known your own sin. Maybe you've gone away from church time after time. You've heard good messages, but you just go back into sin. You go back into the same patterns. That's actually all of us. (laughs) Yes, there's an issue with ongoing sin that we just keep repeating, but all of us keep failing. We need to keep coming for that fresh cleansing, to keep coming for that fresh Seeing the sight of a sight of our Saviour, seeing the sight of Christ. Whether you're here, as you keep coming each week, we shouldn't be coming in fear of our God as a Christian, because sometimes we do. Sometimes we dread church. But we should come with a confidence, a boldness, a confidence in Christ's finished work for us, a confidence that we are forgiven, a confidence that our Father does love us. And if you're coming and you don't have that, then come to receive that. Keep coming back to him. Keep coming to see him. Keep coming to rely on him. Whatever situation you are in, whether you need forgiveness for the first time, whether you feel like you can't have it be forgiven again, Come because Jesus will forgive you. Jesus Christ is seated on a throne. He is the king. 
but he calls for you to come to this throne of grace and receive his grace and mercy this evening. Don't harden your hearts any longer. Don't go back into a pattern of sin willingly. Come and receive cleansing, transformation in him. You know, there's so much to take heart of here. So much to take heart of our King Jesus Christ. So much to warm us. When we come and behold him in his majestic holiness, there is so much in him that we can keep on seeing, week in, week out, day in, day out. May Isaac's experience not just be this one-off experience that we have, may it be characteristic of our lives. May we keep coming back afresh to see him again, see God afresh again. May we know that we can come before a holy God with joyful reverence, We're accepted in the beloved. No sin can separate us from that love at all. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We now have this permanent access, this permanent, sure, steadfast access. Even if you didn't want it anymore as a Christian, you still have it. It's yours in Christ. Access into the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy. And remember, because God is holy, he will do nothing wrong to you. You trust in his holy character, trust in his holiness. Whatever circumstances you're facing even now, behold Jesus in his holiness. Behold him afresh and rejoice that he is your holy king. Even take the Lord's Supper this evening, knowing that you have fellowship with a holy God through Jesus Christ because of his because of Christ's atonement for your sin. Reflect on this. Reflect on his grace. Let us, yes, mourn over our sin, yet delight in his immeasurable grace towards us. Let us come and adore him, our majestic holy God, Jesus Christ, from now and into eternity. Amen. We're now going to sing... Um, our final song, Only a Holy God, which I am aware is a new song. So, um, yes, let's sing this song. Please remain seated.